0: Hi, my name's Sebastian King. I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and today I have the great pleasure of talking with Professor John Hudson. John has been the professor of paediatric surgery at the Children's in Melbourne for the last 20 years and brings an enormous wealth of experience and wisdom to many clinical scenarios. In today's session, John and I are going to be talking about the neonatal distal bowel obstruction, a topic that many people find difficult to get their head around. I was just going to bring you around to talk about some other causes of distal obstruction, bowel uh-huh. obstruction, okay. um, and to get your approach to the distal bowel obstruction, because I think that the way that um, you tink- have taught that and the way that we've learnt that uh, the children's here in Melbourne is slightly different from other centres. So if you if you see a, a child with a distal bowel obstruction that doesn't have an anorectal malformation that doesn't appear to have Hirschsprung's disease what else is sitting there within your differential diagnosis for for the
1: distal bowel obstruction presumed ileal obstruction yes not because no we're not just talking about but um, there's a few rare things um, between um, the The rectosigmoid with Hirschsprung or anorectal malformation and the ileum. I've seen a few cases with colonic atresia, but that's pretty rare. Mm. Um, Really easily diagnosed on a a plain x-ray because there's a giant bubble. um, Too big for it to be ileal. Mm. Um, Much, much bigger than a giant, you know, over-distended stomach. um, And that's the, the, the colon because if we've got a colonic atresia... Um, uh, the ileocecal valve might still be competent, so the air goes through the ileocecal valve into the ascending colon and transverse colon. But because there's an atresia, it's just it's, it's like blowing up a balloon mm. with a one-way valve, and you can't let the air back out again, and it'll blow up right right up. So I've seen a few of those, but that's pretty rare. Mostly, we're talking about ileal atresia, and then ileal atresia, um, of course, is the quintessential problem that Yanni Lowe from South Africa identified in dog model that was likely to be secondary to a vascular malformation Mm -hmm. uh, vascular accident so he in the uh, when I was a trainee he was doing dog experiments in South Africa in Cape Town I think Mm. um, doing ligating the the ileal vessels and he could the closer he was to the bowel, uh, the more likely you were to get a type one A with just a membrane. The further back uh, near the base of the mesentery, the more likely you were able to get a wide bit and end up with a, a gap. so he was able to demonstrate that you could identify types one, two, and three ileal treeses by roughly where the vascular an- anomaly occurred, the thrombus or whatever it was that um, so why did that happen? We don't know actually, but probably thrombus or something. Um, uh, and then you might have lots of va- sort of variants of ileal atresia when, when you've got once you've got the atresia, the top the top end, the proximal bit might become very dilated. So say so it might look like a second stomach. Mm might even masquerade like colon. Um, uh, but when it's very big, it's at risk of further volvulus because the mesonery is often sort of stretched. So the last bit of the dilated ileum might trigger a secondary atresia, secondary to volvulus of the first bit. Um, so, so then, but ileal atresia by itself Actually, not that common. So when I see a child with an ileal atresia, I'm expecting it or ileal abstraction The question is, have they really got an ileal atresia, or have they really got um, Meckel's malus with CF, which is statistically probably a bit more common.
0: And so, how do you? You said you mentioned before about with Hirschsprung's disease and the fact that they don't come out distended. Yeah often the yeah, children yeah,
1: with... Yeah, uh, meconi Mac- will come out distended. And why do you think that is? Because the small bowel secretes fluid, not not absorb it. Mm. it. On, you know, sort of weight for weight, it absorbs fluid less efficiently, it secretes fluid more than it absorbs it. Mm. So I think it doesn't absorb the amniotic fluid very well and it, and it, it secretes some, um, which is... Which would otherwise be for making enzymes, mm. um, and so that'll just. And if we've got a distal functional obstruction in meconium ileus, the small bowel will be secreting a little bit of fluid. Um, will it make a bit more because the the abnormality of the in the CF as well might make it a, a bit more, even more. Mm. And the answer is maybe. Yeah. Um, mm, more difficult, maybe, to absorb. Yeah, right. so mm. but, it, but but it's very characteristic for a child with a massive abdominal distension at birth. The likeliest diagnosis is CF with secondary, you know, ileal meconium mm. ileus. And then uh, I was just showing the students, uh, the the trainees, that picture this morning. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, and then I was making the point that. You can actually make the diagnosis of CF prenatally, if it's a uh, pre, uh, pre-s- pre-surgery in the neonatal ward, if it's a boy, by the absence of the vas in the, at the neck of the scrotum. So, so, te-
0: so tell us about that
1: sign. What, well, what... If in CF, what happens to the vas? And the answer is the vas undergoes secondary atresia. It's present, wolf is present, It it turns into a VAS, but for reasons that we don't understand, it's not just obstruction, it's something else, but we don't actually know what. But we know, because I've actually done some pathology on midterm term uh, abortices with known CF, Mm. and by the time they're 20 weeks, the VAS is might be still present, but it's already obliterated. Mm. It's got no lumen anymore. It might be a fibrous string at 20 weeks. Mm. And I already know that because I've collected a whole lot at one point about 20 years ago to to test this um, uh, because cause CF is now diagnosed quite frequently prenatally. Mm. And if the family offered termination, I got to look at quite a few of abortuses that had Known CF and we're able to see. Um, can you still see the vas at 15 to 20 weeks? And the mm-hmm. answer is just there's a little fibrous string most of the time. Um, so we recognise that sometime during gestation, occasionally just after, occasionally the vas might be present right to birth. But I think it's mostly just a little fibrous string rather than a lumen, normal vas with a lumen. Mm-hmm. But at birth, the common circumstance is that you can tell the difference between a CF baby boy than an ordinary, uh, a normal baby boy, because a normal baby boy, you can feel the vas separate from the, va- from the vessels just at the neck of the scrotum because they sort of start to separate a little bit because um, the vas is going to the epididymis and the vessels are going to the rete testis. And you can see them starting to separate and you can feel them separated at the neck of the scrotum and identifying the vas at the neck of the scrotum in a baby boy where the scrotum is very thin is actually really easy. Mm. And then... just have to think about it. Yeah, that's right, exactly. You've got to think about it and then just do the test. But like everything in life, it's only because... You, you only see what you're looking for. Because like this, this is a classic example. It's an amazingly simple sign, but it's very subtle because it's not something you would normally do, mm. okay? You have to have thought about it. But if you do, it's, I find that really useful because we've got an eyelid obstruction, the question is, if we've got CF, if it's a boy, then if I knew beforehand... I can already tell the CF guys this child's probably got CF mm. before we even do the anaesthetic, which is actually really useful for the anaesthetic department because it changes a little tiny bit the way they do the well, anaesthetic, because yep. they recognise they've got to be really careful, they don't let the kid uh, get too much, too many secretions, mm. you Because
0: know? we'll come, so we'll come back in a second to your operative approach for meconium ileus. But in terms of other causes of distal bowel obstruction, thinking about small left colon, have you got any particular thoughts about diagnosis and treatment for small left
1: colon? It's hard to diagnose, sort of masquerading a bit um, like Hirschsprung disease um, or something, colonic atresia occasionally. Um, But mostly it's because when we do the rectal biopsy we find ganglion cells and then I thought, well, we've still got an obstruction, so we need an enema. So you do the enema. So you're mostly diagnosing uh, um, a small left colon on the enema because you were, we've eliminated Hirschsprung disease. You know, I haven't got an anorectal malformation, um, um, but it looks like you've got something in between and then comes up on the, And then you can see little pellets in the left colon and you know I haven't got Hirschsprung disease, which mm. it would be. And it, but occasionally, you can have pellets in the left colon with meconium ileus. Mm. Like, so they've actually got, there are variants of meconium ileus where it's actually meconium colitis, effectively, mm. rather than meconium ileus. Mm. So, uh, but that's pretty rare. But with the lucky you'll have already thought about the possibility we might have already eliminated uh, uh, CF as a diagnosis. But mostly we'll have done wondering where's the blockage. We know it's somewhere near the end but not right at the end so we're knew, doing an enema. Um, and I might have a clue for this because I might have a baby of a diabetic mother which we recognise as one of the classic predisposing mm-hmm. factors for small left colon. Mm. So
0: with regards to how you've managed meconium, Ileus in the past. Yeah. Your um, what was your approach to the use of um, contrast enemas, and how has that changed over time? Oh, yes,
1: it's interesting because it was so. Uh, Helen Noblet effectively invented the, the diagnosis and treatment of mccainy ileus with a contrast enema using gastrografin, which we don't have anymore. Mm. Um, and Tween. You, yeah, right. With with Tween 80 mm-hmm. at it okay so that was quite effective Uh, but it was very osmotic it was easy to easy to do it incorrectly and give the child some osmotic shock if you Mm -hmm. weren't careful Mm -hmm. so that's why i got taken away but it was actually quite effective but it's interesting you know profit in their own land is often ignored and there was the case here so even though helen described this here we didn't do it very often why not because my senior colleagues when I was a trainee in the 70s didn't like it <laughs> mostly because they didn't like the fact that she she was the junior boy effectively in the department and she uh, you know literally that because this was a time when there weren't many women in pediatric surgery mm. she really was the junior boy mm. so I use that word deliberately mm. because she was a you know fish out of water a female in a very male dominated department and she didn't fit in very Mm. well to women's women's liberationist Mm. for my senior colleagues they didn't like that Mm. Um, so they didn't do uh, gastrographic enema enema very often but on the few times when I've done it it's often quite effective Mm. but like everything it doesn't always work but that's one of those examples of where you're doing a treatment where it often works is the proportional uh, success is related to how determined is the doctor to make it work if you're really determined to make it work you will often make it work hmm. as long as you haven't got an atresia or some hmm. really complicated variant but if yeah. you've got simple mechanimileus often it'll work if you are trying hard enough but you might, you might one enema might not be enough hmm. But if you, you know, really push, 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 you might do two or three animas and might then fix it. And if
0: in the situation where the enema was unsuccessful and you were taking the child to theatre for the laparotomy... Yeah. ..what was... And with a presumed diagnosis of meconium ileus... Yes. ..did you have an approach that was enterotomy clean out and close, or did you always go there or did you typically go there with the mindset that I'm going to form a stoma for this patient?
1: Mostly doing stoma. Yep. I do, because I want to... Uh, Iliostomy at the end of the dilated bit, which is often just upstream of the narrow bit with all the little pellets mm. in it. And then I want to make sure I've got all the, pellet, all the little pellets out by washing out the distal bowel afterwards Um, um, because trying to wash it out during the operation is stressful, hmm. stressful for the doctor as well as for the baby because it will get cold because it takes ages, you fiddle about and there's water water everywhere, it's a mess. And it's not good for temperature control as well as for the blood pressure of the doctor. So my view is it's probably better just to do an ileostomy and get the baby out of the operation. And then once it's well enough, a day or two later, start washing out the distal bowel to try and get all the pellets out. At a convenient time in the ward by putting in a little feeding tube and then you might just use saline or you might need acetylcysteine, Mm -hmm. whichever. Both work. But you don't need anything very complicated. Mm. You just need commitment yeah. to get the pellets out, and the child's in a safe environment. You're right, exactly. Where we're not worrying about hypothermia or anaesthetic risk. Um, we've got the baby feeding reasonably normally in the ward, and everybody's happy. And then it's time to then you've got plenty of time, and there's no urgency and h- rush then. So you've got time to let the distal ileum and the and the colon start to stretch up from the micro. Uh, A bowel it was before and it stretches up quite quickly once Mm. you start getting the pellets out.
0: Well thank you again very much for your wisdom and thoughts today and we look forward to continuing these sessions with Professor John Hudson.